And brothers and sisters, that is the heart of why we are here today. The victory that was won at Calvary isn't a victory that I had, isn't a victory that you had, isn't a victory that any mere mortal man could have. The only way to conquer sin was to be completely innocent and to be literally sacrificed for the appeasement of that sin. And that sacrifice, Jesus our Savior died for the lost with His own blood. He paid the cost. Is the only way that any of us can have victory. And that victory, again, not my victory, but His, is what we celebrate today. And as we mentioned this morning, for those who were here who gathered right at dawn, it's a wonderful thing that Christ died for us, but His justification came when He rose back to life. And so we're here today to celebrate not the death of a great man, but we're here to celebrate the sacrifice and bring him back to life of the perfect man, the Son of God. We've been looking now for over a month at different times, both on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, at the life of John the Baptist and the message that he was preaching. We talked about how he came and some of the peculiar events surrounding that. We talked about his message, that he came to make the paths straight and the way clear for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. That he came and he preached repentance. And he was doing all this to prepare the way for Jesus Christ to come. On Sunday evenings, we've probably about come to an end of looking at some of the more particulars. And I've left this Sunday to leave us with the last words we know of from John the Baptist. The man who the scriptures record was the greatest born among women. Likely that means because of the awesome opportunity he got to proclaim, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so turn with me to the book of John, chapter 3. It's where we'll be a majority of today. John chapter 3. Just to make sure there's no confusion, I've mentioned this several times. The book we call John is not written by John the Baptist. Those are two different Johns in the Scriptures. I want to make sure we understand that. Many of you may recall John chapter 3. It seems to be the most famous verse we have, John 3, 16. Of course, we hopefully recall that that came at the end of, or near the end of a conversation that a Pharisee named Nicodemus had with Jesus Christ at night. And Jesus explained some very important truths to him and said, you must be born again or born from above. And Nicodemus was very confused and said, how do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? And Christ more carefully explained to him that wasn't what he was talking about. And then at the conclusion of that discussion, we don't see a lot uh, of change here, but in verse 22, we pick up a different scene. So that's where we're going to be at today. But I want to set the stage for the first part of John chapter 3, but we'll pick up in verse 22. 
After these things came Jesus and his disciples unto the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in the Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come unto him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all, and he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from the heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things unto his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Let me read the next two verses. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again unto Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. And we'll stop there, but I wanted to get those few verses that have the tail end of the story. Other than the message that we talked about last Sunday that John sent through his disciples ensuring that Jesus Christ was in fact the Son of God, we have no other recorded words from John the Baptist, but that's okay because this statement is powerful and it's true. We want to look at it today. So let me set the stage a little bit more. What we have here is a uh, baptism competition, so to speak. We have Jesus on one side of the river and John on the other. And they're both baptizing. They both seem to be about the same spot. It's a little bit difficult to quite understand, but one could imagine that, I don't know, maybe they could see each other. And here we see John on the west and Jesus on the east side of the Jordan. There's something interesting about this. We've studied John and we know that he came to prepare the way for Christ. Well, wouldn't it seem to stand to reason that when Christ comes, his job is over, right? Yet he was still preaching, still calling for repentance, still baptizing, still teaching, still had disciples. It brings up an interesting question. 
How long do we do what God commands us to do? Until he tells us to stop. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? If you feel as though God has commanded that you do something, we ought to continue doing it until such time he tells us to stop clearly. It's very easy, I think, for us to become persuaded in our own minds that, well, I've done what God wants me to do, now I can go do something different. Be careful with that. John the Baptist was faithful to continue doing what God had told him to do until God told him to stop. So they're out baptizing, both of them. And then we see John's disciples. Now we know that John lost some disciples to Jesus. And some stayed with John. And they said they uh, began to have a dispute with the Jews about purification rituals. The way that this is written, it likely means that they started an argument with the Jewish elite about purifications and washings and things like this. Now, as a man who's never been to seminary myself, it would be quite challenging for me to walk up to someone who has a PhD and, or a doctor of divinity and something and challenge them on some piece of theology, but it seems like that's maybe what they were doing. I don't know if they were picking a fight or not, but they were having a discussion about what it means to be pure and when you should wash and, and the law and these things. And I would imagine that wasn't going very well. We know from other areas of the scripture that the Pharisees were pretty hard-handed when it came to these issues. And so they began this conversation with the Jews. I don't know how it went. I know I'm reading a little bit into this. But I think it's important to note that in verse 26, all of a sudden something shifts. So they have this debate with the Jews about purification. And then in verse 26, and it says, Then they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come unto him. You ever been in a very, very difficult argument with somebody? One you didn't feel like you were winning? And then pointed at somebody else and said, what about that person over there? I think we've probably all done that. It's very easy for many of us to do that as believers and Christians to call out a sin and then get uncomfortable and we're challenged on it and say, well, I'm not that person at least. For whatever reason... John's disciples, whether they were frustrated over the conversation about purification or they just saw the huge crowd that was going to Jesus, they went to John and they basically complained. I'll give you the Ben Stickle version of this. John, I don't know if you've noticed, but just over yonder on the other side, remember the guy that you baptized? You know, wink, wink, which means you should be in charge of him. Yeah, that guy has a bigger crowd than you. This is a problem. I'm going to be mean for just a minute. Is that okay? Do you think preachers ever do that today? Your church is bigger than mine. How dare they? (laughs) Uh, We are what we are, aren't we? Which is fallen people who want to have people follow after us. Now, you could say, well, they thought they were doing the right thing, but it's interesting. They pointed out, he's like, hey, this guy that you told us about, he's got more followers than we do. We must be very careful of this. 
indeed. And I like the, the voice, the part, because I'm going to talk about this later. It says, and all men come unto him, signifying that everyone's going to Christ instead of John the Baptist. But John wouldn't have any of it. And he gave, again, an answer, the rest of this chapter, that is glorious and amazing and important for us to understand what is going on. And the thrust behind what John is saying is he is comparing himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to pay careful attention to this. John explains and clarifies his relationship with Christ first. He tells them, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. And it's very important that John does explain this so that no one is confused for who Jesus Christ is. Because many people wondered, if you go back and read, many people wondered when John the Baptist came on the scene, could this be the Messiah? And John was very clear then and now saying, I am not the Messiah. I came to prepare the way for the Messiah. I pointed out the Messiah. And he was telling them the truth. And so it's very important that he says this. And then he goes on to basically explain, I'm not the Messiah, but I am instead the best man at the wedding. Now, for those who've been involved with weddings, which would probably be most of us, the best man's job is to do whatever the bridegroom needs to take care of everything, to make sure that everything's functioning in proper order, to make sure, you know, today all the, the flowers arrive and the food's there and all that kind of good stuff, <clears throat> to make sure all the family's there for the photos, round everybody up. But this is an important role that if you ever are the best man in a wedding, you need to take seriously because it's important. And what John is trying to say is, look, he said, I am not the one who's getting married. I am the one who stands next to the one who's getting married, and his joy is mine. Most of you know and love Brother Josh Gregory, and I had the honor of performing his wedding a number of years ago. It was a surprise wedding. That made it even more fun. And... Um, one of his favorite pictures from that is probably one of my favorite ones as well, because near the end, um, when I was done with all my part, and I stepped aside so they could kiss, there's a beautiful picture of the two of them, and I'm just beaming, because I'm happy for him. I'm really thrilled and happy that he found a wonderful, godly woman that he could marry. And I'm just excited for him. And you can see it in the photo, and he loves that picture. This is the idea that John the Baptist is trying to proclaim. This idea that he is not trying to compete with Jesus Christ. He is not Jesus Christ. He came to clear the way and make sure that the bridegroom uh, can stand here and receive his bride. And when he does, he stands there and beams and smiles in joy because that is what's supposed to be going on. You see, John's disciples were confused. They're like, no, he's baptizing more. And John the Baptist is like, no, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's a beautiful thing. And I rejoice because it's happening that way. Another amazing thing that makes this even more fun is John got to introduce the groom and the bride, didn't he? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're the bride, by the way. The church of God is the bride. Implicit with this idea that John gives 
is the idea that it's the way it should be, as in more people should be going to him. In fact, you might also almost even look at John when he says, and answered and said, a man can receive nothing. I'm sorry. And um, says, so you yourself bear witness. I'm sorry. 29. He hath the bride as the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore is fulfilled. You could almost see John the Baptist saying, go. This is why I'm here. This is what it's for. Why are you here with me? And then in verse 30, we see an amazing and powerful comment. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. I think all of us should take some advice with us, shouldn't we? We get all wound up in this world. We get all puffed up in this idea of where we attend church, how many people are here, how much money the church raises, how many good things happen. And we lose sight of the idea that our entire purpose in life is to love him. And the more that we love Jesus Christ, the less that we become in the eyes of the world. And brothers and sisters, that's the point. The point is that he increases in magnification and glory and that when people look at me, they only see Jesus Christ and they no longer see me and I decrease and Jesus Christ is magnified and glorified in all that we do. This is the point. John knew it. John said it. And it sits hard with us because it is really challenging to do. And you have to wonder, did he have some supernatural ability to be humble about this? Or did he really have to work at it too? Because if you put yourself in his position, it would be hard, wouldn't it? For years he lived a hard life, living and sleeping in the desert, eating only what bugs he could catch, baptizing people. Everyone came to him and told him, you're crazy and you're wrong. And then people began to follow after him. And all of a sudden now this crowd that had been built up for years is dissipating and going away to somebody else. You know that probably was hard on his ego, wasn't it? It would be hard on any of us. It's easy to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's something entirely different to do it. But John was able to. Now, it's very likely that verse 30 starts a new paragraph that concludes at the end of this chapter. And John, after comparing and saying and contrasting, I am not Christ. In fact, I am just here to help Christ, as in I'm the best man. And then discusses a new thing that he must increase, that is Jesus Christ, but I, as in John the Baptist, must decrease, then goes on with some amazing things that he says. He says, He that comes from above is above all, and he that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth, and he that cometh from heaven is above all. And here we see some very, very important ideas. John is bringing us back to this idea of where Jesus Christ came from. Jesus Christ is not just a good man. He is the Son of God because He came from above. This is why it's important, as we talked about this last Christmas, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that He was given by God from above down to us. He did not come up like the rest of us. He had a supernatural beginning, which means that He was sinless and the very Son of God. 
And John is reminding of this and saying, He who came from above, who has a heavenly origin, has no limit. And then he compares himself, and by further explanation, all of us. We come from below. We come from the earth. We come from our parents. And we have limitations. And we have struggles. John is reminding us that what comes from above is above all. In other words, this is Jesus Christ is God in flesh, and He is therefore above all. He deserves to be increased, and we deserve to be decreased. You also note that that verse in 31, it says, He that cometh from above, that word above, is the exact same one in verse 3, chapter 3, where it says, born again, or in some translations, born from above. Perhaps John, the author of John, is making clear a very important point. And then in verse 32, and it says, And he hath seen and heard, and he testifieth, and no man receiveth the testimony. He's basically saying, look, I have heard this, I know this, I have been saying this in the very beginning, but no one is listening. You could put this another way. Recall that John's disciples came to him and said, everybody's going to him. All men are going to him. And John the Baptist basically says, oh, if it were only true. If it were only true today. That from the stories I hear about that building over there, we had to open the windows and let people stand outside and listen. If it was only true. John the Baptist is saying the same thing. If it was only true that all men were gathered to Christ, as is the desired goal. But regardless of who was there, Jesus Christ was going to fulfill his mission. We go on and see in verse 33 that he that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. This is a peculiar phrase and very interesting. A seal, uh, especially in this time, had multiple meanings, and it indicated ownership or expressed like a personal guarantee. I'm going to set my seal to something. You're going to, you're going to say this is almost like my signature, my stamp, my covering. It is the, the uh, thing that indicates that I am owned by somebody else and expresses a personal guarantee. And I think what is trying to be expressed here is that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we receive the testimony that Jesus Christ is true and faithful, that is our seal that God has ownership of us. Have you been sealed? Do you truly believe in who Jesus Christ says he is? And is that seal, that salvation, that confirmation, that ownership, that personal guarantee that only Jesus Christ can give us, is it outward facing for the public to see that person belongs to Jesus Christ? Can they see by the way that you live and the things that you do and the things that you talk about, can they see that you are sealed by Christ? If they can't, well, there's one of two possibilities. One is you're not sealed. Or two, you are, but you need to be living more for the Lord. We are witnesses to the world of what God has done in our own lives. We are then reminded in verse 34 and 35, it says, He hath, 
received his testimony, has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaks the word of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. Jesus Christ was sent by God and spoke the words that God told him to speak. And we know this from multiple reasons. We know this because Christ himself said that while he was on this earth, he looked up to the Father and did whatever he saw the Father doing. So Jesus Christ not only walked along this earth perfectly, he followed the will of his Father perfectly by always looking unto his Father and mimicking exactly what God was doing. If you want to know how you should live, You should look unto Jesus Christ and do exactly what he's doing. You should follow after him. And this is what Jesus Christ is doing. All things he's following after him. And it says something interesting. It says, um, God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. There's an idea in, in, in extra biblical um, explanations of the book of Leviticus that the Holy Spirit rested on prophets by measure. The idea that some of the prophets had more of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament than others, and we can look back and probably see that that makes some sense, that idea, that God worked more powerfully in some than others. And what John the Baptist is saying is that Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit fully without measure. There is no limitation to what Jesus Christ has access to the Holy Spirit. He is not like other prophets. He doesn't have enough of the Holy Spirit to part the waters or to make enough oil and flour to feed one more meal. Jesus Christ has full access to the Holy Spirit because he and the Holy Spirit are one. And this is an important distinguishing mark. There is no doubt we see in Scripture that John the Baptist himself said, from his time of conception was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is very unusual. But it was still measured. Because a mortal man can only take so much of the Holy Spirit of God living inside them, but not Jesus Christ, who was in fact God. And is, in fact, God. And so we see this idea that Jesus Christ, again, being different from John the Baptist and different from us because he had all of the Spirit given to him by God. For the Father loves the Son and has given all things unto his hand. All things are under his authority. He sees all. He knows all. He made all. He is all. Then we see in verse 36, the final thing. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now let me spend just a moment to talk about this. These words have double meanings. Not because there's a hidden truth, but because there's purpose behind what they are saying. So for example, it says, he that believeth on the Son has or hath. This word means both present and future tense. 
And I think the idea that's trying to be expressed here is that when you believe on Jesus Christ, you have eternal life from the moment you put your faith in him and until forever. You see, sometimes we get caught up thinking that someday we'll get to go to heaven. And you know what? You will if you've been saved. But the reality is your eternal existence, your salvation begins at the moment that you put your faith in him and you are forgiven by him and then continues forever. Heaven may be our final destination, but we are left here on earth knowing that is our future inheritance to enjoy the time we have now in fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's more than just punching a ticket to go to heaven. It's more than just, I took care of that and someday I'll be okay. It's about Jesus Christ changing your very heart and your very life so that things now are not like they used to be. I've said this in my testimony for years and there's no other way to explain it. When I got up off my knees after I was saved, something was different. It's hard to explain what that was. But something was different. And many of you can testify the same. He that believeth in the Son hath, has, currently has, and will have everlasting life. It began the day that you were saved. But the flip side of that is bad too. Or the flip side of that is bad. But the wrath of God hangs over him continually. You see, the other side of that is those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, those who have not believed John the Baptist, those who have not believed John, the author of this book, that said, and we read this morning, I bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ was dead and buried, crucified, and rose to life. Those of us who have not put our belief in that state have already died and will stay dead and will see eternal punishment. I said this a couple weeks ago. You're going to live forever in a spiritual sense. That has already been decided. The one thing we don't know yet for some is whether you will live forever in heaven or whether you will live forever in hell once this life is over. But your spirit will continue forever. And John the Baptist and all the brave men who have preached the gospel since, and all of the brave women who have followed after the Lord and shared the gospel with others, have said from this time forward that you must believe on Jesus Christ to have everlasting life, or you will experience the wrath of an almighty God who rightfully and justfully punishes those who are disobedient. There is no other way. As I said this morning, in Christ Alone is our hope. In Christ alone is our salvation. And in his resurrection is our redemption and our joy. We did nothing to earn this. So looking over what we've looked at today, John had to lower himself. The greatest man born of women had to look his disciples in his face, had to look out and see the dwindling numbers, 
and I had to tell them the truth. He must increase and I must decrease. That is humility. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who do not know the Lord, who've never been saved, I will say that some of you, it's because you refuse to be humble. Because you refuse to admit the truth, which is you must decrease in your status. It may not happen the way you want it to. It may not happen when you want it to. And it may not happen in spite of all these other things. You must humbly come before, the God, before God and say, I want nothing else in life that matters except for you. Lord, save me. And until you can humble yourself in such a state, God does not come to the proud. And John the Baptist is a marvelous example of that. John also reminds us in these verses that Christ came from above and he came with power. The power of a holy God, the power of the Holy Spirit who filled Jesus Christ without measure is why Jesus Christ could do the things that he did. With the power of God. We're a little too probably flippant sometimes, and I think our culture has a real problem with this. Do you know I can go home this afternoon? I can push a few buttons, and a whole bunch of food shows up on my porch. I can push a few more buttons, and it'll come cooked. I can push a few more buttons and find out anything I want to know about anything. I can swipe my fingers and zoom in on states and countries and places. I can go to the airport and be in London in seven hours. A hundred years ago, it would take two months. Here's what I think. I think technology has become so amazing. We are so enamored with ourselves I think sometimes we think we are God. I can just have food. I can just instantly communicate. I can just almost instantly go anywhere. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. I can get it any way that I want it. Brothers and sisters, understand the message that John the Baptist was preaching. You are not God, and neither was John. And John knew it. We must not get so wrapped up in this world and the technology and the fancy things in front of us to somehow think that we have power that only comes from above because we only come from below. John knew this full well and tried to tell us, and boy, I really think this is a real challenge for us today. And I really think that's why in some ways we hear amazing stories about God's amazing movement in countries not as well off as ours. Because when you have to go to a well every day to get water, you know you're not God. But when it magically comes out of a pipe, it's easy to get the wrong idea. John was humble before Christ. John reminds us that Christ's power came from heaven. And that power brought Jesus Christ. The book of John later records 
In chapter 10, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. The commandment have I received of my Father. This is Jesus Christ, I just quoted, telling you about why he's going to die and that God the Father gave him the power to do that. Do you think they could have killed Jesus if it wasn't for him giving up to it? Not a chance. And Jesus Christ, through his power, came back to life. But what we celebrate today on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate that God above told Jesus Christ, go to earth and do my will and do everything that I tell you. Watch what I'm doing. Do all the things that I want you to do. And then you will die. I will look away from you and crush you. And you will be raised to life through your own power on the third day. And then you will come to heaven and be seated at the right hand. And I will send the Holy Spirit to this earth to be with us to lead and guide and protect us to be our comforter and then someday someday you will either meet him or he will come back and get all of us and the imagery that we have there is again the bride and the groom we, as believers, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And Christ will come to get us when it is his due time. And until then, you had better be ready. Until then, you had better be humble. Until then, you had better not be paying attention to what someone else did or thinking that, well, I did what God told me to for a year or two, so now I can quit. Or thinking that something else is more important or being proud of yourself or thinking that you're God. But we ought to be about the business of living like Jesus Christ because that is what he came to model and that is what he died for us to do, to start that life. When we are saved. You see, ultimately, Christ is to be exalted above all. And John knew it. And John said as much. And so we have to really ask ourselves a very serious question. Of all the things that John has told us, do you believe him? Have you sought after the Lord? Have you been saved? Do you know what I'm talking about? Because if you don't, as I said before, then you're already dead, past tense, and you will remain dead spiritually. There is one way to come alive, and that is the power of God through Jesus Christ, Christ and his resurrection. And so I just want to challenge you today. That's why you're here. That's why you came on a Sunday morning on Easter to celebrate God's sacrifice, to celebrate his resurrection. But oh, it would be sad to go home not being able to truly celebrate because you don't truly know. If it's pride that's holding you back, you need to deal with that. If it's a lack of faith that's 
holding you back from knowing him, then you need to address that too. Whatever it is that's keeping you from your full repented belief in Jesus Christ, you need to fix that. I can't do it for you. I wish I could. Wouldn't that be nice? Just be like, y'all saved. Doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ came and was lifted up before all men to bring all to salvation, but all of us have a choice in the matter. And some of us, it's time for us to repent. And some of us, it's time to renew the first love, lest we be like the church that left its first love. So before we continue with the service, I want to give an opportunity for those who may feel the need to come and to pray. There's nothing special about being down here. You don't have to be down here to be saved. I wasn't. Many of you weren't. Many of you were. Sometimes it's helpful to take that first step to come and seek the Lord. If that's what you need today, I invite you. Jesus Christ invites you to put your faith in him.